Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 17, we're in this evening as we continue our study in Isaiah's prophecy together, and we're in this section now where for about 11 chapters or so, God is giving judgments uh, against the pagan nations, we might say the Gentile nations, those outside of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and we've been looking at these different burdens that God has been laying, these heavy things that he's been putting upon Isaiah's heart, particularly it seems he's been showing these things in a vision to Isaiah, so Isaiah somewhat seeing these things and with a heavy burden and concern, these weighty matters, he's then uh, tasked by the Lord to speak these things, not only uh, understand particularly directly to those nations, but he's basically conveying these things in front of God's chosen people, really as we'll see and talk a little bit about tonight as well, to try and discourage the people of God from putting their reliance upon these foreign nations for help and assistance. He's really trying to dissuade them from relying upon earthly things or worldly avenues of help or assistance, or really, as we often might say, leaning upon the arm of flesh and looking for carnal, earthly ways to fix problems that they were dealing with, particularly in their lives. Chapter 17 now brings us to another one of these Gentile nations, particularly the nation we'll see here of Syria. He begins by saying, chapter 17, verse 1, this is the burden against Damascus. Now, again, we know Damascus was and still is the capital city of Syria, so we know this is particularly to the nation of Syria, different, remember, from Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was the world-dominating power at this time, uh, but Syria was another separate nation, and this is who God is addressing this to, the burden against Damascus, or we might say Syria. Behold, Damascus, he says, verse 1, will cease from being a city and will be a ruinous heap. So, uh, this has actually happened, if you do any little bit of research in history, this has happened numerous times to the city of Damascus there in Syria, where, as verse 1 describes, they have actually ceased from being a city and have really gone into a completely ruinous condition, but they've often then rebuilt. Uh, in fact, they, to this day, still claim to be one of the oldest inhabited cities uh, on the earth, but Certainly, this no doubt describes something that would happen, but something ultimately, it seems, that is still going to happen, that there is going to come at some time period in the future historically, really a complete ruin and cessation from the population of anyone being there in the city of Damascus, that there is something scheduled of great ruin coming for the city of Damascus, even outwards in the future still ahead. He goes on, verse 2, to then say, the cities of Arar are forsaken. Now, that city, Arar, where it's being described there, is really about 14 miles or so east of the Dead Sea. So it's right on the other side of the Dead Sea. So this would sort of be that eastern territory, remember, where Ammon and Moab and Edom are at over there, uh, that area forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The picture here is that territory east of the Dead Sea, no one making the flocks afraid or the animals afraid. The idea is because it's basically completely unpopulated at that time. So no one means no one is there. 
That area becomes desolate because of what happens as a result of the judgments God allows to fall when the Assyrians would come in. So there's not even a population to actually make the animals afraid. They're just wandering around undisturbed, the flocks at that time. Verse 3, in the fortress will also cease, and remember a fortress was a uh, kind of a fortified area, a place of refuge and safety, and God says that refuge and prior safety is something that will cease, it will no longer exist, from Ephraim, and as we said before, Ephraim is a term often used synonymous with Israel, and when we say Israel and Ephraim, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, this is the time period of the divided kingdom where you have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south, so he's talking about the northern kingdom because they would fall first to the Assyrians particularly. And so whenever he says Ephraim, he's talking about that northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they were the predominant tribe up there is why that name is used. So the fortress will cease from Ephraim, Israel. The kingdom from Damascus, they would be defeated. And the remnant of Syria they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the idea they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, he's going to say in the next verse, the glory of the children of Israel is going to wane or it's going to diminish or depart. So the idea here is in the same way that Israel would fall, uh, also Syria and Damascus would fall as well. Both Damascus uh, as well as Israel, though they would make an alliance, they would still be defeated by the Assyrians. They would still be captured. They would still be conquered. They would try and rally together. We talked a little bit about this earlier where Israel was trying to make an alliance with Syria or Damascus to kind of safeguard themselves from being conquered by the Assyrians as they were dominating many people at that time. But the Assyrian Empire, we know, historically conquered Damascus, which we're referring to here, in 732 B.C. Uh, and it only took another 10 years, and then ultimately in 722 B.C., they would conquer Israel or Ephraim as well. So God's basically, again, really trying to convey to his people here, this is a worthless effort. You're thinking that by going to the Syrians and going to Damascus to arrange uh, some sort of a uh, you know, partnership or a coalition that somehow you can save yourselves from the Assyrian Empire, and God's basically saying that is a worthless endeavor. It's an idea in your mind. It's your own carnal plan. It's your human way of trying to solve your own problem rather than, as God keeps reproving them for, you're not depending upon me. Rather than trust me, rather than let me show my power and call upon me to help you and seek me in prayer and let me work and be dependent upon me, you keep going out and trying to do these little excursions and paths and ideas and plans on your own, going to foreign nations, hey, maybe we can hire them, maybe if we make an alliance with them. And God continues to keep saying this is utterly worthless because their glory is going to depart just like yours. In fact, God's saying their glory is going to depart a decade before yours. Uh, they're going to fall even prior to you. Verse 4, notice he now begins to speak particularly to his chosen people, Israel, directly. Here he refers to them as Jacob, saying, In that day it shall come to pass, notice that the glory of Jacob will wane. And the fatness, the idea of, again, understand, from an ancient perspective, uh, being fat or fatness wasn't something that was a bad thing. That was an indication that you were prosperous. 
Uh, most people who lived like commoners or who lived more poor were typically lean. Those who were able to put on any weight, it meant they ate well. <laughs> so when the Bible talks about fatness, it's describing prosperity. Someone who's able to feast well, they have sumptuous meals. So it's a sign of prosperity, and God's saying that is going to diminish, and they're going to grow lean because they're no longer being in abundance and prosperity. Now, you notice where he uses the term Jacob here, particularly uh, for Israel. Understand, remember, Jacob was uh, the initial given name to Jacob. Remember from the book of Genesis, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Jacob's name, remember, was changed to Israel. Uh, Jacob received that name, heel catcher, Yaakov, because he was a conniver. From the moment he came out of the womb, remember, he was already grabbing his brother's heel, heel catcher. He knew the idea is he was someone who was always trying to trip up someone else to get ahead of them. Uh, that's kind of what Jacob's personality was characterized by. He was someone who was always working an angle. He always had some plan that connected to getting ahead with the next plan. And rather than just do things upright before the Lord, Jacob was always conniving and deceiving and manipulating and working this person to then take care of that person. And Jacob just had this temperament about him where he was always a master deceiver and working angles and manipulating people. And eventually, remember, that really caught up to him. Uh, because what you sow, you reap, and whatever you are, God will always bring someone else just a little bit more like you if that's what it takes to break you. And remember, that became Jacob's problem. Remember when he ultimately fell into hardship working for old Uncle Laban, who it says changed his wages 10 times and remember kept ripping him off, told him he was going to marry the one daughter and then did the old switcheroo uh, because they would wear a veil on that day during the, the, the wedding ceremony and he realized the master conniver got connived in a way like no one else had ever been before. So whenever God uses the term Jacob for his people Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble, we read that in the Old Testament, he's always referring to Israel in their rebellious state. Uh, that's what he's implying typically when you see the term Jacob, times when they're rebelling, when they're living outside of submission to God, because the word Israel means prince of God or governed by God. And eventually, remember, when God breaks Jacob, as God breaks him, and remember, he wrestles with the Lord, it says, all night, and, and still wouldn't submit, and ultimately, God had to cripple him. And that's when he gave him the name Israel. And basically, it was necessary for God, you might say, he almost, if you would, had to cripple Jacob in order to be able to actually crown him and give him the blessings and do the things he wanted to do in his life. And the problem was is that he was so much into conniving and deceiving and manipulating, God basically said, I, man, I, you're one of the toughest wrestling matches <laughs> that anyone's ever given. But I, I guess if I'm going to have to, I'm going to dislocate your hip. I'm going to put you in pain and cripple you if that's what it takes because I want to bless you. But you got to submit to me. And you'll never win wrestling against God. Uh, and so when God here refers to his people as Jacob, he's referring to that unhealthy tendency 
rather than referring to them as Israel. And again, because they were living in rebellion and idolatry, God said the glory of Jacob in that condition, it's going to wane, it's going to diminish. Again, God is never going to bless when someone is living in rebellion or when they're living in a sense conniving and manipulating and they're trying to do things with their own little schemes and plans. God says the glory of that is always going to fade. It's never going to last long term. And he says, the glory of Jacob is going to begin to wane, and the fatness, the success, the prosperity of his fleshly efforts, it's going to start to grow lean. It's going to start to, to kind of wear off in time. God won't let it succeed. He then goes on, verse 5, to kind of further emphasize this, saying, and it shall be as, now notice he's speaking metaphorically, when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm, it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim, yet the gleaning grapes will be left, like it, left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, but notice only two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord of hosts. So what he's describing there metaphorically as he talks about you know, diminishing the productivity and the fruitfulness of his people because they weren't living in right relationship with him and they were scheming and conniving in the flesh rather than walking in the spirit and doing what pleased God and letting God work among them. God says, what I'm going to do is, he says, I'm going to begin to diminish your prosperity. I'm going to do whatever it takes to begin to get your attention. And he says, in essence, I'm just going to retract my blessing from you. And God can do that if that's what's necessary. If that's what it takes to get our attention or even to get a nation's attention, God can crush an economy. God can do anything that's necessary to let plans fail and things not work out. And as even he says, the glory is going to begin to wane and to fade. The fatness is going to begin to grow lean, the excess, the prosperity, Things are going to get lean. They're going to get difficult. Now he describes here in verses 5 and 6, using this analogy of there are crops that will greatly underproduce. He says even the most fruitful bough will only have four or five olives on it. The idea there is a horrible harvest. The return is disastrous. It's extremely minimal, and it's like a failed crop. And this is what God's describing. I just won't let it succeed, God says. I'll just let things be very, very underproductive. Verse 7, and in that day, a man will look to his maker, that is in the day of struggle, in the day of hardship, the day of lack, and his eyes will have then respect, reverence for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, that is to the things that he was seeking after, the work of his hands, what he was trying to produce in his own efforts without God's involvement, he will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. So notice, God would use hardship to prompt his people to look to him once again through desperation. That's what he's describing there. He will no longer look to his altars. He'll no longer rely on the work of his own hands nor respect what his own fingers were creating. In other words, he would realize my efforts are failing horribly. This isn't working. 
I'm putting all this muscle and sweat and effort into this, and I'm trying my best to make this work, and I'm doing everything I can, and I'm building all these things, and, and with my hands, I'm accomplishing all these things and, and trying to endeavor, and, and none of it is working, and it's starting to get very difficult and very hard. But notice, it's in the midst of the hardship that God says that will be what will shift the focus of his people. That God would use the hardship, he would use the struggle to make them realize their own efforts are failing and will never work, and they need the help of God. And God has a way at times of getting our attention, whether individually, or as a family, or as a group of people, or as a nation even, that he does not have problems making things get extremely difficult circumstantially, if that's what it takes to shift our focus off of what is wrong and to put our attention and focus back upon him. He says it's in that day of great difficulty and hardship that a man will then look to his maker and his eyes will again begin to have proper reverence and respect for the Holy One of Israel. In other words, God, if you don't help, we're done. We need your help, God. We need your involvement once again. Verse 9, in that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bow. Notice even the strongest of cities, like a bow off of a, a tree, an extension, completely forsaken, fruitless, the idea is. And an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Because, he comes back to again, verse 10, you have forgotten the God of your salvation. And have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day, you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest, God says again, verse 11, the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Now, notice God describes there verse 10. The problem with them was, he says, that they had forgotten the God of their salvation and the rock, the stabilizing thing in their life that was really the foundation, their stronghold in their lives. Now, understand, when, when the Bible says you have forgotten the God of your salvation, this isn't the idea here of like, you know, amnesia set in or memory lapse or, you know, I, I forgot to call that person back or I forgot to text them back. One of my greatest pet peeves under the sun. So I figured I'd launch it from the pulpit right there. Uh, you know, I, I've forgotten to do this or I've forgotten to do that. Oh, I, I mean, wasn't there, there, there was someone in our lives that we used to honor and worship and wasn't there someone who saved us and delivered us? It's not the idea here that they've forgotten God. When the Bible says the idea they've forgotten God, the indication there is that basically they have neglected and ignored God. The idea is they, like, like forgetting something like, you know what, I, I am, I'm just so done with him, forget you. Right? We say that sometimes. Forget you, man. I am done with you. And the idea there is going forward, I am going to ignore you, dismiss you, disregard you, and I'm putting you in the rearview mirror because I'm going to go do what I want to do. And the, that's the idea there, that they sadly, something had happened in their lives where they were pursuing their sin or they wanted their own will in their own way so much. The picture there is when the people come to a place where they neglect God. 
They set God behind their back. They push God aside because they don't want to follow God's way or let God be in charge. So they disregard God. They push him aside disrespectfully, and, and they basically put God out of their thoughts so that when they think, they don't include God in their thinking anymore. That's why he says there in verse 10, you've not been mindful of the rock of your salvation. The idea is no longer being mindful of God in one's decisions, one's thoughts, no longer being mindful, God, is this really what you want? Maybe my idea, but is this really what you want? And really being mindful, would this please you? Would this be best for your glory? Would this be best for uh, you know, the, the people that you love and care about? Or is this just something on my mind? Because I don't know about you. I'd be the first to confess. There are times when I have things on my mind that not necessarily are the mind of the Lord. And I've had to humbly recognize that and learn that. I hope you have as well. There are times where we can even have good ideas that aren't God's ideas. There are times I believe we can even have, if you want to call them, godly ideas that still aren't God's ideas. They may be good. They may be godly. Paul the Apostle, remember in the book of Acts chapter 16, he tried to go into Asia to preach the gospel. I say that was not only a good idea. Wouldn't you say that was a godly idea? Right? The, the Bible tells us that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then here Paul tries to go into a particular territory to preach the gospel, and it says the Holy Spirit forbid him and hindered him. Why? Because that was not God's idea at that given moment for Paul to be doing that. God's idea was for him to go preach the gospel somewhere else. That's how the Church of Philippi got planted. And again, we have to remember that when we put God out of our thoughts and we're not being mindful of God, we are on a very unhealthy path going forward. And notice... Ultimately, it never will succeed because he tells us here in verse 10 and 11, he says, therefore, you'll plant your pleasant plants, he says, in the day you make, verse 11, your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. Isn't it interesting? God says, you can actually do things in your own sweat, equity, and labor, and work your field, and you can, you can even make something grow, God says. You can even make something flourish and succeed. And we can do that in our personal lives. I even hate to say, I think that that can happen in the work of the Lord. I think it's possible to make a church grow or make a ministry flourish in completely carnal ways. Because if you appeal to people's carnal nature, then you can do things to manipulate people. And I hate to say it, but sometimes I think Christians are more easily manipulated than worldly people are. Because people prey upon them with you know, spiritual terms and spiritual jargon and language and thus saith the Lord's and God showed me this and, 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 and they get manipulated almost worse than people in the world do. And so we can make something grow, make something flourish, but look, God says, you're trying to make your plant grow and you're making your seed flourish, but look what God says, verse 11, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins. God says, you made it grow, but he says, it's going to end up just in complete ruins because I didn't make it grow. That wasn't something I was doing. It was what you were doing, and therefore, it's going to end up in a day of grief, he says, in desperate sorrow. Verse 12, he then says to his people, woe to the multitude of many people 
who make a noise like the roar of the seas and the rushing of the nations that make rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. You get the idea here of pretty heavy waves are coming. That's the analogy God's picturing. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. So the Assyrians would come in. They would come in with intensity and like waves of rushing water, they would take out territory after territory after territory. And it would look like that they were gonna ultimately, even as they conquered the Northern kingdom, that they were gonna conquer, remember Judah and the Southern kingdom too. And as you've already talked about, God will rebuke them in one night as he sends out that angel of the Lord and 185,000 Assyrian troops are put to death and they turn around and they go away and they leave Judah and Jerusalem alone. And so God, again, is reminding his people here, listen, if I need to, I can rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Behold, even at eventide trouble, and that's how it happened. Remember, in one evening, in one evening, trouble came, the angel of the Lord went out protected Judah, the southern kingdom, and before the morning, he is no more. That's exactly what would happen. By morning, the problem was solved. One night, God brought a change of events. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Again, what God's heart is, despite what the nations do in their power, God says, I can easily address anything. I can confront and change anything necessary as needed. And God's main point to his people here, he's trying to drive home to them, is he's trying to say, look, I don't want you to trust in the worthless help of the Syrians. Don't trust them. Rely on me, God says. Look to me for your power, for your protection. Let me be your resource, not worldly things and fleshly avenues. Instead, depend fully upon me. Chapter 18, he begins saying, woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, and that seems to be a, a picturesque way describing perhaps the locust swarms that would be particularly characterized in this territory, Ethiopia, Cush, and beyond, likely describing that, the land of buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, this would be uh, ancient Ethiopia, what we often refer to, you'll see as Cush, other places in the Bible. It encompasses more than just what we know of present-day Ethiopia, kind of that area there of the, you know, Egypt, Ethiopia, that particular section there of kind of northeastern Africa, and even beyond that, because notice he says here, beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even vessels of reed on the water, saying, and the idea here is the, 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 the encouragement, these regions beyond Ethiopia, sending messengers, saying, go swift messengers to a nation tall and of smooth skin. Now, that would be the area of Ethiopia itself. They were known, uh, contrary to the Semite people, they would shave themselves. They typically didn't allow hair on themselves, so this characterized the people in that particular area. They would shave their skin smooth. They were of taller stature. To a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. So what this is describing here is people groups from beyond the area of Ethiopia, recognizing the Assyrians are conquering people left and right. And so these Cushite peoples from numerous territories, they now recommend sending, he says there, verse 
uh, to ambassadors. Hey, let's send ambassadors. Let's send them up to the people of the Ethiopian area, these smooth-skinned people who were of taller stature. And the idea was, let's encourage them to go up to Judah and let's basically say to the people in Judah, listen, if we rally together and if we make a, a confederation of a group of nations together, and they're basically saying, if you need help, call upon us, we'll come together and, and we can defeat them and we can stave off the Assyrian conquest. If you need us, basically what they're saying, these ambassadors are, if you need us, send for us. You just cry out, you just reach out, we'll be more than happy to come up and to join together with you. The idea here is just summon our assistance and we'll come fight with you. Now, God's going to say, listen, I know what they're offering you. That was their offer, not my offer, God's saying. God's going to say here, I know you're getting this really great offer from the flesh, but God's going to say, that's not my offer. I don't want you to take that offer. I want you to take me as your ultimate help. He says, verse 3, all the inhabitants of the world and all the dwellers of the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. Again, the banner was something clear to see. It was something that was used in warfare. It would represent their identity. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. So the idea there is something God is going to do something, the imagery there is something that's very loud and clear. That's the idea. A banner and a trumpet, something that is loud and clear. He's saying, you can't miss it. I'm going to work in a way, God says, that it will be very obvious. It'll be loud and clear what I'm doing, and you won't be able to miss it. Verse 4, for so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. And I will look from my dwelling place. Again, God's saying, I know the problem is you're looking from your vantage point. You're seeing it from an earthly, horizontal perspective. You just see the circumstances, God says. But I'm a complete rest, God says. Up here, from my vantage point in heaven, I see things completely differently. Because God sees all the dots on the map. He sees all the situations, the circumstances. He sees not only the present moment, but he sees the next day, the day after, a week after, a month after. So often when we're restless, God's completely at rest because he has a different vantage point. He says, I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he, now that's a reference to God there, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. It's a picture of harvesting. They will be left together for the mountains of the birds of prey. The picture here is carcasses, dead bodies of soldiers, death. And for the beasts of the earth, the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So what God's describing here, he's using, again, just another analogy of like harvesting crops. And God says, listen, I know it looks intimidating from your vantage point, but God says, I am going to intervene in a way that is going to be so loud and so clear. God says, I'm going to judge these Assyrian invaders, and I know what's developing, but just as quick as somebody can go through in one day and just harvest all the crops, and completely cut down every bough and every branch, God says, I'm going to do the same thing. 
I'm just going to step into the situation, God says, in a way that I need to. And so therefore, God's point to them is, I know what's being offered to you. I know they're trying to offer you some carnal opportunity or some way to do this. And, and, and God's not wanting them to take the help of pagan people. God's not wanting them to look to the world to solve their problems as people of God. And that's always a very tempting mistake sometimes that we can make, is the world will offer us its solutions. Hey, this is how we solve problems. Uh, and again, we want to be very careful that we're not looking to Egypt to deal with problems for God's purposes, and that we're not looking to the world with its ideas, its plans, its solutions, and leaning too much on the arm of flesh and the ideas of mankind and how worldly patterns are done. And God says, look, I know they're offering you a worldly path. They're saying, hey, just summon us. We'll come help you. We can do it together. If you just, we rally together and let us help you, we can take care of the Assyrians. And God says, you don't need the world's help. All you got to do is summon me. God says, from my vantage point, I can come in and real quickly take care of that situation. And God's wanting them to rely upon him. And whenever we find ourselves in a crisis or difficulty, it is always going to be a temptation to put trust in some human effort to resolve the situation, where at times there always seems to be like a substitute idea for trusting God. And God here is cautioning his people to be careful of that. Just because human help is offered, it does not mean we should always take it. Let me encourage you. There are going to be times where human help in compassion, in a great idea, is offered to you, but it does not mean you should always take that help. Sometimes it is a matter of faith saying, you know what, I appreciate your offer, but in all due respect, I'm going to trust the Lord in this, or I'm going to look to the Lord in this. I'm going to let God work in this situation, and those are the occasions we give God a chance to work. Verse 7, he seems to almost somewhat be seeing something, I believe, maybe further out now, because he says, in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts. So now something's being brought to the Lord from a people tall and smooth skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, describing the same territory of people, the Ethiopians, the people of Cush, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem. Now, certainly if God just told them, listen, if they come with their ambassadors and they offer you tribute and ideas and say, let's make a alliance and let's conquer them together, God says, refuse it, don't do that. So now God describes here a time when they're bringing presents up to the area of Jerusalem to the house of the Lord to make an offering as a gift to the Lord I don't think he's referring to accepting what they would be bringing because he doesn't want them to take that bribe. I think perhaps the Spirit of God here, again, zooms the lens way out for us here to something that will happen further out of the people of Cush and the Ethiopians, people from other nations, bringing a gift to the Lord to honor him in worship. You know, there's an interesting set of scripture in Zephaniah chapter 3. It says this, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day that I rise up for plunder, my determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation and fierce anger, and the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then, God says, I will restore 
to the people a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. The idea is multiple foreign nations serving God with one accord. We know that's going to happen in the time of the kingdom age when Jesus is back on the earth. But then Zephaniah 3, that section concludes saying this, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So perhaps here God is making a small inference to this time in the kingdom age when people, even from these areas of Ethiopia and Egypt and the Cushite territory, will be coming to Jerusalem in the kingdom age, bringing their offering as worshipers unto the Lord. Chapter 19, he begins then the judgment or burden against Egypt, saying, Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. The idea is coming quickly to act. And one will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence. The idea is overwhelmed by the mighty presence of the Lord. And the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother. Everyone against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. And again, remember, the Egyptian territory was broken into multiple different provinces. So he's describing here this prophecy now, again, to discourage his people, as he already did regarding Syria, regarding the people of, of the Cushite territory, the Ethiopians and the river beyond, and now the same thing regarding the Egyptians. God is going to say, don't go to Egypt for help. <laughs> don't rest on Egypt's assistance, for they need help just as much as anybody else because they themselves are going to be defeated. They're a worthless, vain effort to rely upon them. God describes here a time when they would begin to have their own demise as God would stir up somewhat of a civil war among their multiple territories, city against city, Egyptians against Egyptians, they would begin to have inward strife and civil war amongst themselves as a nation, which would cause their downfall. Verse 3, the spirit of the Lord, or of Egypt, excuse me, will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, God says. They will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians, he says, verse 4, here's what's going to happen to them, God says, I gave into the hand of a cruel master. A fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. And again, the Assyrians ultimately conquered the Egyptians in 671 BC. So again, God's saying, listen, their destiny is to be conquered as well. I'm going to cause disruption and civil war among them, and they're going to have foolish ideas as they seek their gods and their mediums and spiritists. Verse 5, God says, regarding the fall of Egypt and his judgment against them for their own sin and wrongdoing, he says, verse 5, the waters will fall or fail, excuse me, from the sea and the river, now that's a reference to the Nile, to the Nile River in Egypt, the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everyone sown or everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, 
and be no more. And then the problematic thing because of that also, verse 8, the fishermen will mourn, and those who lament will cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Now, what he's describing here, remember, the Nile River in Egypt, that was their lifeline. They depended upon the Nile River as their life source for their food and for their economy. And when the Nile would flood its banks and then the, 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 the waters would go forth and it would replenish the land and it would help their crops. And so the Nile River was essential to their economy, to their survival, to their food production. And God says, you know what? I can shut down Egypt instantaneously because I'm the God of creation. And God says, all I got to do is just dry up the Nile. All I got to do is make it run shallow. All I got to do is to shut off its source. And instantaneously, God says, I can shut down the lifeline of that nation and break its back as a people. And you know what? As we look at that, we in America may not be dependent upon the Nile of the river, but what's our lifeline? And God is more than able in any moment to just break the back and shut down the lifeline of a nation, of its economy, of the main source that keeps it surviving and remaining stable and productive, and he can instantaneously shut down any nation, instantaneously, so fragile we think we're so secure, and God says, I'll just shut down the river and everything will dry up. Verse 9, he says, moreover, those who work in fine flax... Those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundation will be broken. The foundations of the nation will be broken and all who make wages will be troubled and sold. Why? Because God made the economy collapse and God can do that. God says, I'll, I can collapse the economy in any moment. I can just shut it down. That's what he did to Egypt to break the back of their nation. Verse 11, he also says, surely the princes of Zoan are fools, and Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they, God says? Where are your wise men? The idea is the cabinet members around Pharaoh, God made all of their advice complete foolishness. God can do that if necessary. Let them tell you and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools. The princes of Naf are deceived, God says. They have deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord, look at verse 14, the Lord has mingled a perverse, the idea is with distorted thinking. He's mingled distorted thinking in the spirit in our midst and they have caused Egypt, that is these advisors and counselors, to err in all her work like a drunken man, staggering around in his vomit, just making foolish decisions, unstable, making a mess of things. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or the tail, palm branch or bulrush may do. The idea there, neither shall there be any work. Verse 15, God saying, nothing will work. Nothing will work. Because notice, what was God doing described there in verses 11 through 15? Really, he's describing how God himself would intervene in a way where he would turn the advice of all the counselors around Pharaoh, who was their highest ranking official in the land. He would turn the advice of all their counselors. 
into complete, perverse, foolish, stupid ideas, which would make the government do lots of dumb stuff. Now, don't get a parallel here in your mind. This was just Egypt. And God said, I'll just put delusion in all their minds and all those government officials around Pharaoh will just say, they'll think they're so wise. Oh, we're so wise. And God says, where are your wise men? They're fools. And they're implementing foolish ideas and everything that they're doing, he says, is causing the nation to err in all its works like a drunken person staggering around, vomiting, making a mess of things, and nothing that they're doing is working in the government, God says. It's all just leading to the downfall. Again, the Lord knew what he was doing and what he had purposed, verse 12. That's why he says, let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed. Look, what we need to know, what's God doing? That's what any nation needs to know. What does God want? What does God's wisdom tell us? The wisdom of man is utterly dangerous and destructive. We've seen that again and again, and such was the case with Egypt as well. Verse 16, and in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over. In other words, they see the hand of the Lord at work and this mighty, powerful nation. Egypt was strong from time to time, but just when they saw the hand of the Lord, it just struck terror and fear into their hearts because they realized they were undone before God and his mightiness. And the land of Judah will be like a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined. Again, when they realize that God's determined certain things, it says that they begin to be humbled and broken in fear because they realize the hand of the Lord has determined their doom and their judgment and it's bringing shockwaves of fear among them because they're realizing we don't understand. We've got all these wise counselors and cabinet members. I mean, we voted our best people in to our Capitol building and nothing works. Nothing works. Why? Because you're ignoring God. And it's the same in our government. You can get the smartest, most educated people on the planet and stick them in the Capitol and stick them in the White House. But if God is not honored, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And nothing will work. Nothing will work. And it didn't work for Egypt in that way either. And that's what God was trying to show his people. Don't rely on Egypt, God's saying. They don't know what they're doing. They're worldly. They have no understanding of what I'm doing, God would say. Now, look what God describes as the chapter here concludes in verse 18 throughout. He now begins to go from talking about Egypt being something that cannot save his people. And now he begins to talk about actually Egypt actually being saved by God. And I think we're, again, zooming the lens out here to things in the latter days. He says, notice the repetition, in that day, in that day. We're looking at something beyond. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan, and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its 
border. So what he's describing here, notice that there's coming a day, he says, when the Egyptians, remember we read that verse from Zephaniah, God will give a pure language. It seems like a, a universal one language to all communicate in worship to the Lord, that all nations will come together. And here he describes a time when the people of Egypt will want to speak the language of Canaan, that is the language of the Jews, because they want to go to Yahweh God, to the God of Israel, to worship him. And this, of course, will happen, we know, in the time of the kingdom age, when Jesus is there reigning in Israel, in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in the other prophetic books that ten men will grab the sleeve of a Jew and say, take us up because we have heard that God is in your midst. Uh, and so here, there's this reference to them coming. Even he describes there an altar to Yahweh God in the midst of Egypt. Notice, they, they recognize the one true God of Israel. There's a time coming when that will be something that they're recognizing. Israel is the one true God. Verse 20, and it will be for a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them, look at this, send them a savior. And a mighty one. And aren't you glad that our Savior is a mighty one? He's not a weak one. Again, he's going to send them a Savior. Jesus will come in his second coming and set up his kingdom. And he will send a Savior, not just to you and I, not just to the Jews. God loves the world. God loves Egyptians and Assyrians and Syrians and Iranians and Persians and Greeks and Russians and and, and, and God loves all nations. And this is the point here. God says, I'm going to send and I'm going to bring salvation to the Egyptians. I want to save Egyptians, God says, and deliver them. And then the Lord will be known, notice, Yahweh God, the Lord will be known in Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Again, talking about the day of the kingdom age. And will make sacrifice and offering. And they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. So notice, not only making a vow to the Lord, but even performing their vows to the Lord obediently out of love and obedience to him. Verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike it and heal it, and they will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. Interesting what God was willing to do Notice to bring healing to the nation of Egypt. It says he will strike them and he will heal them. Notice God can do both. And if necessary, in order for God to bring healing, God is willing to strike and to bring pain and to bring, if you would, hurt. Hear me, not harm, but hurt. God is willing to bring pain and to bring hurt and to strike with such things if that's what it takes to bring a deeper, more necessary healing. And God's willing to do that for a nation. And look, if we're willing to be honest and humble before the Lord, God's willing at times to do that as well. In Hosea 6, God says the same thing, that God says, I, I, I will strike and I'll hurt, but I'll also heal. And, and so sometimes if that's what it takes to cause us to turn to the Lord or to return to the Lord, God said, I will strike Egypt, he says, but I'll also heal them. And it took striking them to be able to bring healing into their lives. And so if the Lord has had to strike affliction or pain or grief or hardship to a degree in your life to bring a measure of healing in your life, don't despise that. That's an act of his love. Would you agree if a surgeon is going to accomplish something to bring your healing, they're going to have to bring a degree of pain 
to produce an ultimate healing, right? It hurts to get a surgery, but that pain ultimately leads to the ultimate healing as the result of the surgery. And so God's a good physician. Now, what's interesting, notice this little phrase there, don't miss it, verse 22, it says of Egypt, they will return to the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? To return means at one time they were in relationship with the Lord. God's saying Egypt will return to the Lord. What does that mean? I'm not 100% sure. You'll have to ask the Lord. It could be an indication when was a time when Israel, or excuse me, when Egypt was in right relationship with the Lord, and then ultimately at the time of the kingdom age, God says, I'm going to strike and heal them, and they'll return back to me in the way they once did serve me. Well, could be a reference to the time period in the days after the early church when the gospel went forth to many different nations, and there was at one time a very strong Christian presence that did exist in Egypt. And so it could be when the different people went back after Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, and there were people there, remember, of all different nations, that the gospel went back to Egypt, and maybe for a time period there were, was great a presence of honoring the Lord there, and God's kind of, in a sense, again, he's seeing that further out, that Egypt would embrace Yahweh God. They would know even the Lord Jesus Christ, and that there's going to come a time when God brings them back into right relationship with him once again as a people nationally. Again, that's conjecture. I'm just speculating, and I admit that, but it's interesting that they will return to the Lord. God will bring them back. And in that day, verse 23, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, the Egyptian will go into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And in that day, there will be one of three with, watch this, Egypt and Assyria, and a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. And why was God's blessing going to be there? saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, you know something very unique and supernatural has happened when you have Egypt, the Assyrians, and the Israelites in a unified way, all worshiping the Lord together, loving Yahweh God, and in like a highway going back and forth, there's complete unity among them. But see, that, that, is, that is always the heart of the Lord, and it is only with the Lord and by the Spirit of the Lord that God alone can do that, that God can bring Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, people of all nations together, and he dismisses all the animosity that's between them. And that's what's going to happen in heaven anyway. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and again, you know something marvelous has happened when all these barriers have been broken down. And they're all unified now, and they're all worshiping God together there. That's something that in the time of the kingdom, it's going to be an amazing thing. All these different nations, again, no more animosity. Again, Assyria is where modern day, kind of the area of a range there, where kind of like Iraq and those territories there. And here they're now just all in unity, all in harmony. You know God's done something. But again, the kingdom age will be an absolutely marvelous time. If I could beg a moment of your time, flip over to chapter 30, just real briefly, I want to conclude with this, and we'll take a few moments to pray together. God's heart, again, in these passages is this concern of his people, stop trusting other people, stop trusting other things, worldly things, carnal things, trust me, trust me. 
That's his point again with Egypt. Don't trust Egypt. Egypt's going to fall, God's saying. I'm going to bring Egypt down. Don't trust Egypt. Look at chapter 30 of Isaiah. I'll leave you with these verses, kind of preview of coming attractions. Here's God's same sentiment once again. Woe to the rebellious children of Israel. Why are they rebellious? Who take counsel, verse 1, but not of me. Ever done that? Take counsel, but not counsel from God. Who devise plans, but they're not plans of my spirit, God says. They're plans of somebody's human spirit, but not of the Holy Spirit. That they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, God says, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, these great worldly ideas, and trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, God says. It will be your demise. And your trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zon, and his ambassadors came to Haniz. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but shame and also approach. You see how God lovingly is trying to spare us? He's saying, look, I don't want you to go and to rely on things that aren't going to help you. They're not going to benefit you. They're actually going to be the thing that's going to lead to your downfall. And so God says, let me help you. Let me bring the benefit into your life, and you'll avoid a bunch of shame and a bunch of regret, and you'll get to see the hand of the Lord and celebrate him for that. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father.